Okan I'm here with the brand new World Wrestling Federation champion, Hulk Hogan. You proved it to thousands and thousands of fans, not only here tonight in Madison Square Garden, but throughout the wrestling world. You know some meeting, they proved it to themselves. All I asked was for the whole WWE to stand behind the holster. And I told him I'd bring it home for the USA. You know some meeting, it is the dream of a lifetime, Daddy. Oh. And you know something? I can't imagine this is like going to the mountaintop a thousand times over. I feel the energy. Hulkamania is running worldwide. And it just turns me on me, Gene. And I felt every one of those 25, 30 plus thousand people with me standing behind me all the way. And it felt great. Well, you have arrived, Hulk Hogan. Have you never seen anything as beautiful as this, me, Gene? This belt is part of yours, too. It's everybody out there. Oh, 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 what a... That's nice of you. I'm really proud of you. And you are a good wrestler. I'm proud of you. Oh, the champagne is blowing. Ivan Putski. Hey, how proud are you, Jack? Very good, huh? Can you win? Honestly, can't tell you uh, what my expectations were for the sportscasters in 2011 when this show started. Probably, my expectation was that like ESPN was going to buy it, and Don and I would be making millions of dollars on the number one podcast in the world. And uh, well, obviously that didn't happen. But somehow, some way, I am still standing in January of 2019. As we start season nine of the Sportscasters tonight in Buffalo, New York, uh, I want to thank some people uh, who have gotten us this far. First of all, I want to thank Don, who was my partner for many years on this show. Uh, Don Russ, of course, is a founding member of the Sportscasters and one of my best friends in the history of my life. And I want to thank him for everything he did for this program. I also want to thank Jeff Passan, who was the very first guest to ever appear on the Sportscasters. Uh, episode one, season one, episode one, way back in 2011. want to thank Jeff for essentially agreeing to come on a show that didn't exist, uh, which was big of him. And, of course, Jeff is uh, still with us to this day. Also still with us to this day is John Wertheim, who is going to be the lead guest of season nine. Uh, we're going to get to John in a minute. Uh, John Wertheim hasn't been on in a bit. He's a guy who's been on 17, 18 times, probably the second most behind Lee Jenkins. And... He hasn't been on since 2016, and here's why. He's got too many jobs. The guy is the executive editor at Sports Illustrated. He's a senior writer at at Sports Illustrated, where he basically covers their tennis exclusively. He also is a correspondent for 60 Minutes, so he's running around the world recording stuff for 60 Minutes. Uh, So the guy's everywhere, and he's busy, but we we talked for about 50 minutes yesterday, and um, we we did some really... we had some really good stuff, I thought. We talked about SI, the future of the magazine, uh, what he hopes happens. SI is for sale. Uh, what does he hope happens to the magazine? We talked about Serena Williams. We talked about John Bones Jones. Uh, we talked about his work on 60 Minutes. So we jumped all over the place and had a really good time. 
And I'm really excited to have John back uh, for Season 9. Also on the show today is Eddie Trunk, uh, the the king of hard rock and heavy metal, the voice of hard rock and heavy metal. Uh, Eddie's going to join us after the book club update, and uh, he's going to talk to us. We talked about, first of all, Eddie's a huge Giants fan, the New York Giants, so we talked about the Giants a little bit, and then we get into rock. We talk about new bands and why they are emerging, why they're not emerging, and uh, we went into a bunch of different stuff in rock. I gave him my top 20 Rush songs uh, kind of as a joke, but uh, just super cool to have Eddie on. So it's, it's a great start, I feel like, to Season 9. Look, at Season 8 was, was really great. Season 8, I was really happy with. Uh, I really felt like I got back to making this podcast uh, what it had been. Strong booking, right? John Feinstein made his debut. Matthew Berry made his debut. Uh, we had our friends on. Jeff Passan, Jeff Perlman, Jane Levy, the first lady of the sportscasters went on with a new book. I did a Yale hockey documentary to commemorate the five-year anniversary of the national championship. So season eight, I felt like it was a really good season, and I want to build on it. I want to do more episodes this year. I want to do 40 or so episodes, hopefully. And, you know, I just want to look at, I know what this podcast is, right? It's this is going to sound cocky, but it's kind of like The Wire, I think, where when the people who were making The Wire were making it, they knew no one was watching it, but they felt strongly in the work. So they did the best they could to continue to make the work good. And I think that's how I feel. I know no one's listening to this, but I believe in the work. I think it's good. And I think people who are critical of these things think it's good. Now, they probably don't think these parts are good, when I'm just talking, I think it's the interviews that are the best. And even sometimes I listen to one back and think like, oh, man, I stink. You know, why am I even doing this? But, you know, honestly, I started it because I thought it'd be fun. And it's been a great hobby. And I want to thank Richard Deitch for, again, recognizing the work. Uh, in case you didn't see, The Athletic ran a list, uh, kind of like a year-end podcast piece and they noted the notable sports podcast out there and the sportscasters was mentioned um in 2014 of course it was named one of the best sports podcasts by sports illustrated so i'm proud of those things but really i'm here to have fun i love as much as i hate booking guests i love booking guests if that makes any sense Uh, i've had fun kind of developing one last thing with my brother greg over the last four or five months and today on one last thing, I'm going to talk about Christmas break, talk about Christmas as a father, uh, talk about the good and the bad of my uh, my Christmas and New Year's break, and hopefully you guys will enjoy the interviews as well. So, eight seasons down, season nine starts now, and let's kick it off with the great John Wertheim. <laughs> All right, our first guest of season nine is a graduate of Yale University, and he's been on this program more than anyone not named Lee Jenkins. He's the executive editor of Sports Illustrated, a senior writer there, and a correspondent for 60 Minutes. A warm sportscaster's welcome to our friend, John Wertheim. Welcome back, Mr. Wertheim. We have missed you. It's been a while. You still have my, uh, still have my walkout music? I do have your Yale fight song for sure. And, um, you know, it's just, you got too many jobs. 
it's hard to track you down. You, you know, you're an executive editor at SI. You write for SI, a senior writer. You're correspondent at 60 Minutes. You know, it's like, holy cow, how do you how do you track down John Wertheim in 2018? He's too busy. So we had to wait till 2019, but here you are. Here I am. I'm, uh, I'm driving uh, actually from a 60 Minutes shoot, so uh, this is how you get me. Catch, catch me in the car. Let's talk about 60 uh, glad, glad we could do this. Glad we could do this. Let's talk about 60 Minutes because I got to assume that your relationship with them kind of was birthed out of the the sports 60 minute sports thing that went on at, on Showtime. I think it was on for a bit there. And we always, I always really liked that stuff. I thought there were some really great pieces on there. And I know you were on this show to talk about them a few times. And, um, is that kind of the evolution of it? And, and like, I'm curious, like 60 minutes is a huge show, right? Like that's a, that's a show. Like that's a part of American Americana that will exist forever. Like, where does that? I mean, I'm trying to ask this in a way that's not corny. Like, oh, is it a dream come true? I don't mean that necessarily, but like, <laughs> you know, what is it? You know, does does it mean something to you to be a part of that beyond you know a paycheck or you know the exposure or whatever? Does it mean something to you in like this artificial sense of like maybe the intangibles of it? Um, yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, no, it, it it does. It's um, I mean, sometimes you you stand back and it's pretty cool but honestly it's yeah i mean i think to, to your first part of your question you're right it, i started um i was doing some first i was doing kind of andy rooney type essays and then i did some pieces um i think we talked about that march sean lynch pieces when the last time yep. i came on yeah. for the sports show and then um yeah there was there was sort of corporate hijinks and the sports show uh unfortunately went away and they sort of said would you willing would you be willing to come on and sort of stay with the regular Sunday show and it's, it's worked out great. It's been, uh, no, I, I mean, everyone says this, it's been a lot of fun, but it's a lot of fun. And, um, there, there are not too plenty, you know, not too many places in media that still have this kind of investment. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it makes for busy days, but, uh, it's, it's worked out great so far. I have to tell you that I still do kind of hold a grudge against 60 minutes because when I was growing up, Nothing said to me the weekend is over and it's time to get your ass back to school. <laughs> exactly. Then Pat Summerall, you know, it'd be like uh, they'd have like 49ers Cowboys on and it would be like, you know, the fourth quarter, nine minutes left and they cut to this, you know, promo and Pat Summerall would be like, 60 minutes tonight looks at President Reagan. And I'd be like, oh, fuck, 60 minutes back to school. Except on the <laughs> West Coast, we're we seeing it at regularly scheduled time. Right. Um, no, you're, you're exactly right. And it, you know, it's funny. I mean, for all the changes in media and for as crazy as this landscape has gotten and the 10,000 channel universe we live in and streaming, you watch that Sunday night game on CBS and you get the promo, the game ends and the stopwatch starts picking. Um, but uh, no, you're right. I mean, it's 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 funny because I think in not, in, it's not in a, in a weird way. It's a lot like Sports Illustrated, where you have this legacy brand with a long storied history, and you sort of have this balance between um, keeping the tradition and and also you know innovating for 2019. But um, it's it's really funny you say that because I think a lot a lot of people have a lot of different. Oh, I remember the, the Mike Wallace questioning and people have their own personal history with the show and working there. You really, 
you really realize that. I want to know though, was it a rib? Like, how did they get the the Yale guy for one of his, you know, first ten, fifteen stories on the show to do this love piece on the Harvard? I don't even mean, what what is it? The Lampoon, the Harvard Lampoon. Like, what happened there? There wasn't a oh, the lamp, the Lampoon piece. Yeah, I know. It's it's so funny because I was actually I was thinking about wearing like a Yale tie to the studio or something, but then like <laughs> chickened out at the last minute. Um, but uh, we, we're great fans of comedy. I'm kind of a comedy geek, so I was able to put down any sort of hostilities and uh, the, the humor and talking to. Jim Downey and the guys from Veep, uh, that, that was able to override any sort of rivalry. Well, it was an interesting piece. I want to ask you a few things about it. I took some notes. I was watching it. But um, my brother was in a secret society at Yale. Uh, so it was interesting for me to find out that it was a society. And I, I could relate to you because when my brother graduated the night before class day, I think, me and my dad and my other brother were allowed to go to the society um, to visit for you had for, to go naked though, right? No, but we could. There was restricted areas we couldn't go. There's kind of like a back room that we couldn't go, and my mom couldn't go because women aren't allowed there. So, oh my god, yeah. Oh, I know what society that is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you know, it's funny that it the weird. lampoon, uh, the lampoon did have a room that they didn't want the cameras couldn't go there. Um. I don't know. You know, I, I honestly, I have a, I have a, uh, I have very mixed feelings about secret societies and these societies in general. I, I certainly respect the tradition, but uh, uh, you know, there, there are other maybe uh, less progressive aspects to them. But uh, it's funny. You, so you weren't able to go to the. I, I know exactly what society you're talking about. You were, you weren't able to go to the whole building. No, there was just one part in the back that they had closed off that was only for members. I didn't really push it. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, all right. I did, to me, you know, I'm a state college kid. I'm not an Ivy Leaguer like you, my brother. But um, to me, it's a little yeah, silly. It's cracked up to me. Yeah, to me, it's a little silly. Exactly. It's, like, uh, it's a lot of cloak and dagger. Uh, it's a lot of silliness. Well, it's a big treehouse is what it is. I would call my brother. It's like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I got to pick up these two giant jugs of wine. It's like, oh, why? Well, I have society tonight. Oh, okay. Like, right. you know what I mean? It's like, oh, so this society, what, you just rotate who gets the alcohol and you go there and you drink until it's gone and you go home? And he's like, yeah, pretty much. So. Yeah, you, you give it a fancy name and right. you say it's been a sacred tradition for 160 years. But yeah. uh, it's, it's just big boy treehouse. He didn't miss anything. There was a really interesting part of the piece, though, that I thought. And it's when they were talking about. Uh, the girl, I can't remember her name, I, I apologize to her, but the girl that's the president now, she was talking about how they have these reunions and, you know, the people are too white and they're too male and um, they want to make this change. You know, it's all very 2018, 19 sounding. And then you go to the guy uh, who you were interviewing at his desk. I'm not sure if it was the Simpsons guy or the Veep guy. One of those, you know. Old so Dave Mandel, yeah, yeah, and great he, guy, yeah, yeah, Dave and, Mandel. And he goes, I want two things, funny, be funny, that's the number one thing. And then I forget what his second thing is because I was so focused on the first thing. And I remembered back to the beginning of the piece where you're talking about how, you know, these people, they're mostly judged based on their what they have in print, which is, you know, you if you're going through papers, they're papers, they don't say, I mean, maybe they do say, hey, I'm a white guy. Um, who wrote this paper, hey, I'm a black girl, or whatever. Maybe they do say that. I didn't see the papers. But 
I, my question, I guess, I'm, I'm laying a lot out just in case people didn't see it, but my question is how important do you think it is for them to follow the advice of let's just be funny, no matter who the funniest five are, let's get five in here, the funniest five, no matter what, versus the battle to let's be less white, let's be less male, let's be more diverse. Like, did you talk to her more about kind of the where that those two philosophies kind of meet and maybe even diverge and how they're kind of reconciling that? Yeah. I mean, I I think one of their points is we want more women, especially, but we want to have more diversity during the comp process, you know, during the tryout, the audition process. And once that happens, what we're finding is that there are a lot of funny voices that aren't just white males. So I, I don't think there's any sort of, well, you know, I don't think there's quotas. I don't think there's any sort of affirmative action. I think I think the attitude is we need to get more, we need to get a, a greater variety of people, especially women, interested in just auditioning. And once they audition, what we're finding is women are no less funny. So I, I don't. I, I hear what you're saying. I don't think they're necessarily at odds. And I think Dave Mandel is, you know, the, the guy's. He's sort of the the showrunner for Veep. Um, progressive guy I, I think his point was you know funny is funny and i think the point at the lampoon was we just need to have the audition process be widened uh, so I, I don't think they were necessarily in conflict or inconsistent if, if it appeared that way in the piece no no i don't think that i, I think just the two philosophies maybe could not definitely but maybe could be in conflict in the sense that well let's say you have Let's say you have 20 people auditioning in 2019 in the fall and, you know, it just so happens that the nine funniest people are white males. Do you take the 11th funniest person because she's a a black woman or, you know, like I was just curious where they stood on that. But it does yeah, make don't, don't quote me on this. I, I think it's blind. I think it's blind. I think the selections are blind. So that's why don't they try, want to you know, I, 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 I withdraw that statement. But um it is funny that it's been this historically, it's been this overwhelmingly, I mean, this is like Buffalo in winter white. I mean, this has been this overwhelmingly (laughs) sort of white male organization. And I I think we said, I'm having to this piece is like a year old. So I'm having a hard time, but it was like three of the last five presidents, four of the last six presidents have been women. So um, things are changing, but uh, you know, I mean, I think that there's a broader, I don't know. I don't know how into comedy you are. I mean, there's sort of a lot of broader discussion about, women's place in comedy and what's considered funny and the same joke made by comedian X is received differently depending on who delivers it. I mean, I think this falls into sort of a a broader discussion about women in comedy, but um, I would say uh, it's a a good thing that uh, sentiments seem to be shifting. Well, comedy in general is in an interesting spot right now because, I mean, it's almost as under attack as anything in this country in the sense that you know, the line that comedians have always tried to teeter, um, nobody can see it anymore because, like you said, depending on who you are, it might be in a different spot. You know, depending on who's listening to the joke, it might be in a different spot. I mean, there was just the big Louis C.K. Um, blow up, and I listened to the jokes, the Parkland jokes. I didn't really find them all that offensive. I, I don't find much offensive, maybe, so maybe I'm kind of the wrong person to ask like to me you know jokes are jokes whatever uh, how much how much of that do you think was about the context 
I think of, it was about uh, the guy. Like, I think Louis C.K. is so, if, like... If Dave Chappelle says that it's one thing, if a guy who's trying to revive his career right. after embarrassing an offensive Me Too allegation says... Um, yeah, I don't, you know, one thing I, I, I think is interesting. I, I don't I don't have an opinion one way or the other, but uh, a friend of mine who's a comedian who's been doing it for a long time now, and, and actually has been a... You know, now he's found success, but he had... a 10, 12 years of, he said, it's a rough life. I mean, it's a lot of sleeping on couches and your hours are screwed up and you're eating gross food. And he said, you know, honestly, like my sisters say, what a crazy way to live this. You're living like an animal and you're not making any money and you're sleeping on these disgusting couches in the back of comedy clubs. And his, his theory, and I, you know, I, I don't, uh, I just, I just feel out there. I, I don't validate it or invalidate it, but his theory is that it's sort of a self-selecting band that's willing to go through it. And, you know, Amy Schumer is wonderfully successful and good for her, but for every Amy Schumer, there are 999 comedians that are living this horrible road life. And he says, you know, it's basically dudes that don't care about their appearance that are willing to sleep on disgusting couches and, you know, eat beans out of a can. Um, his, his theory is basically like women have the good taste not to uh, embark on this disgusting lifestyle. But one of the, Effects of that is 10 years into it. That's why maybe they're more male comedians than female. Can I offer that up strictly for discussion? It's uh, interesting, Not yeah. to uh, take a side. Anyway. I've um, heard all the horror stories. Not sure how we got out of this. But. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I've heard all the horror stories as well, like about the uh, like the comedy condos, like the comedy clubs holding these condos that the guys can stay yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. Guys exactly. or gals. And they're these just disgusting, like not kept up places or otherwise they're putting you up at these mo- these like roach motels on the side of the – Hey, so you're not you're not in the best part of town necessarily. There's a safety factor, and he's like, you know, I'm 26 years old, and I was living in a frat house. It wasn't that big a change for me. To ex- exactly at the uh, at the at the condo at the comedy club's four hundred dollar a month crappy studio right. apartment. But he's like, my sisters would say I couldn't spend an hour there. I'd want to take a shower for the rest of the month. So <laughs> anyway, yeah, there we are. Well, forget Harvard. Let's move on. They still suck at hockey. And uh, I hate Jimmy Vesey. But uh, he was two two eleven and 2 all-time against Yale, by the way. Um, let's talk about SI because you, you mentioned CNN being a legacy. And we hear this a lot about magazines and especially SI about how it's a, a legacy ma- magazine. And, you know, the Time Inc. Corporation is, you know, has been selling off assets and SI is for sale. And, you know, um, just as someone who books – Gaston has had a wonderful relationship with SI and booked many, many SI writers. I've noticed recently that, you know, Lee Jenkins is gone. He's took a really interesting job with the Clippers. You know, Richard Deitch left for the Athletic. Uh, it's just it's it's a it's a it's a time of turmoil, I think, for SI. A time of change. Um, you know, the magazine recently went to biweekly, um, which I don't think is a bad thing. I'm perfectly fine with it. Um, but as someone who sits where you sit, um, how do you feel about the stability and, and the future of SI um, as a magazine in the crazy world that is the world of magazines in 2019? Yeah, I mean, I'd say the crazy world of media in, in 2019. Fair. Um, yep. I, I would say I would say change, yes. Turmoil, no. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, I think whether it's ESPN or the New York Times, I mean, you know, every everyone is sort of in transition. Everyone's trying to see where this 
train is headed. Um, and you're right. I mean, you're, I don't think I'm violating any, I don't think this was a breach of any great industrial secret that, uh, Sports Illustrated's for sale. Yeah. And, uh, there've been a number of interested buyers, but so I think in a sense, we're, everyone's sort of waiting to see, um, is this an individual the way it was for Time Magazine? Is this a company? Is this a large media company? Is this, I mean, I, I think we're all sort of waiting to see the direction of the buyer. But, but yeah. I think in the meantime, no, well, it still makes money. There's still, we lost people, but gained others. Sorry, sorry go ahead. No, I, was, I just, before we got too far away from that, I was going to ask you, is there a, either a person or a type of person that you view as the ideal buyer? Like, is there, maybe not a person like, you know, uh, John Rockefeller or something, but maybe like a type of person that you think is most ideal to buy this? Like, is there something you're hoping for more than anything else? Or are you strictly just waiting no, to see? No, I mean, I think, you know, the, the fallback that everyone points to is what Jeff Bezos has done with, with the Washington Post. Right. And, you know, Time, Time Magazine appears to have been purchased by a, by, by a similar figure that, is not doing this necessarily philanthropically, but they believe in journalism and they're willing to invest in journalism. And yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think it all depends on sort of the vision. I mean, I think there, there could be one individual who buys sports illustrated and it could be great. If that person doesn't have views that align with, you know, the, what the journalism that sports illustrated has been doing for, you know, whatever, whatever 60 some odd years, then less great. So I, I think it's more about, um, what the goals and motivations are and where they see. Yeah. But I think just sort of what, what they see as the direction, not to the sports illustrated, but sort of as media as general. I mean, someone could buy it and say, I love podcasts. We're doubling down on podcasts. That would be awesome. As far as I'm concerned, uh, someone else might say, I think podcasts are a flash in the pan and you know, I, I don't believe in podcasts. So I, I think it's really more about, the vision and a certain type of buyer. I mean, again, the reflective answer anyone in media will give you is Jeff Bezos. Right. Who essentially has said, just um, do your thing. Yeah. You know, I'm, I, I'm willing, I'm willing to, uh, I want growth. I want investment. Um, I'm willing to hire young people and try new, sort of try new platforms. That would be great. But you know, I, mean, I think in some ways, you know, you, you mentioned some people that have departed and it was, it was, you know, I won't lie. It was, it was sad to see Lee Jenkins go. Um, but we've also made a number of, you know, every, every week, you know, we, we have a new audio director. I mean, I think some of this is in keeping with changes in media. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think we, there's still, still a lot of work being done, not just in the magazine, certainly there, but also online. I mean, our, I, I love our podcasts. Uh, uh, there's been a lot of great stories. We, we put out, um, I mean, I had nothing to do with this, but we put out sort of the 25 best traffic pieces on the website and for, for 2018. And you sort of look at that list and you say, you know what, there's still a lot of really quality work being done. So, um, you know, I, mean, I think we're, we're all, candidly, we're all waiting to see how the sales situation uh, plays out. But I think in the meantime, everyone's still in many ways doing what we've always done. I mean, I, I started, in, I was a summer intern in like, 96 and in some ways the place is unrecognizable and in some ways at the end of the day the the drill really ain't all that different um so it's part of what you know the, the other thing is this is kind of part of what makes it fun is that 
you never, 20 some odd years ago, you didn't go to the video studio and hear a documentary pitch and do a podcast and worry about the website. So um, it's certainly changed in the last 20 some odd years. But um, again, you know, what, what in media hasn't? Jimmy Trainer does a great podcast for you guys. That is something I think could be a little bit better. This podcast in general, great podcast. Seriously, I don't just say that because uh, great, great podcast, right? Oh, absolutely fantastic. Seamless transition from what I thought Deitch was doing a great podcast. Seamless to to him, and I think he's taking it in a little bit of a different direction to make it reflect who he is more, you know. And I think he's done a really great job. I think it's it's one of my favorite ones to listen to when it pops up in my feed. And I, another thing I, I wanted to say, just because I, I know I kind of said, oh, this guy left and that guy left, and Peter King did leave. But I think the running more and quarterback did incredible work this year without him. Connor Orr is very good, um, who stepped in. You know, he's one of the more recent hires. And Jenny Vrentes and, and, and is great. Um, so yeah, I was – Jenny and Clemco and yeah, John Jones. Yeah, yeah. Really oh, good. I'm happy to hear you say that, but I, I wholeheartedly agree. Let me ask you this, and then we'll move on, because I know this makes you a little uncomfortable. Um I remember when I started this in 2011, sometime that year uh, when Damon Hack made his first appearance. I, I remember it clearly that he had written sort of a gamer for SI about a Monday, the Monday night, the week one Monday night game that year. Um, so it was probably September of 2011. Uh, I think I want to say it was the Jets and the Broncos. I could be wrong about that. I mean, but I always joke around with Damon like, oh, man, I just want you to work at SI for one more year to do do your gamers again. You know, I miss you writing about football, whatever. And then I think about SI doesn't do that anymore. You know, like that's that that's sort of gone. It's a different magazine now. And and I guess the question for you I have is in 2019, what do you think SI as a magazine does best? What what do you think is the best kind of content that you guys are doing? In the magazine specifically, not necessarily something you do for the website or or for the subscription service or for a podcast, but like the magazine that I, I read it on the iPad because I think it looks beautiful and I get it earlier. Um, but what do you think is, is what you're doing best? Like what's, what do you think is the wheelhouse of SI in terms of written content? And what do you think is something that used to be something you did great? Like maybe the Damon Hack example um, that I gave that, that you feel is just kind of fading away and, and isn't as important anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I guess I'll answer that in reverse order. I mean, no question that the gamer is something that uh, Sports Illustrated used to do that is almost laughably obsolete, right? I mean, right. No, nobody's uh, by Tuesday morning. There's not a whole lot about the Monday Night Football game that I don't know. By Thursday, when a magazine arrives in your mailbox, it would be laughable to have a recap of a Monday Night Football game. Um, but I still think there's still a lot of access-driven stories. I mean, you mentioned Lee Jenkins or, you know, Grant, Grant Wall's story recently, soccer story recently. I mean, these, these stories that depend on a level of depth and uh, a level of access. You know, Chris, Chris Ballard's story on Steve Kerr. I also think, and the New York Times sports section, too, has picked up on this, that a lot of times the most interesting stories in sports are not necessarily the ones involving the, the Patriots and the Warriors and, uh, you know, the Red Sox. And there are a lot of offbeat stories. There are a lot of sort of second layer stories there. I mean, the the thing I always say about sports is that I would be really worried if our collective appetite for sports was diminishing, but that's, that's not the case. The appetite is insatiable. 
so the stories, I mean, I was thinking about the stories I did last year and I did like a, a, a catching up with on Johnny Bench and an investigative piece on the, the Dodgers and foreign corrupt practices and the, the Mavericks sexual harassment piece. Um, I, I mean, I don't think those are pieces that were being done anywhere else. I think that's a strength of, of Sports Illustrated that you have these stories that you're just, you're not going to find anywhere. Um, and the investigative pieces in, in particular, I mean, I didn't, I don't think I spent, I don't think I spent one day in a press box. I didn't go to a locker room. I didn't, wasn't one of those people with their arm extended trying to get the same soundbite from LeBron that 50 other people were trying to get. I mean, I think Sports Illustrated, for better or worse, has kind of gotten out of that game. And I think what we've realized and a lot of people have realized is that there are a lot of great stories, a lot of great profiles, a lot of stories that haven't been told. Some of them, you know, again, that Ballard's piece on Steve Kerr, we all know him, but there've been other pieces with athletes you, you probably haven't heard of. Um, and I, I think what you're realizing is that there's so much in the sports ecosystem today that has nothing to do with the game itself. And so Again, uh, and you you go to a game, you do a profile, you'd be in the locker room. I mean, I, I rarely go in locker rooms anymore, and I think most of my colleagues are, are probably in uh, in the same boat that you're looking for stories that don't necessarily mean you've got to sit there waiting, uh, you know, scrambling from the the coach's press conference into the locker room. I think uh, it's a much different kind of storytelling. Yeah, and you mentioned Ballard's piece on Kerr. His work on the on the the Warriors in general through their run has been, you know, next level stuff. And I think, you know, I think what I like to read the most in SI are the athlete profiles because I think that being SI sort of grants a special level of access. I think it just creates. I think every athlete, anyone who plays at this level, they've all read Sports Illustrated like their whole lives. You know, it's almost like we were talking about. 60 minutes I, I think to have a piece about you in SI there's sort of an intangible meaning to that for athletes I mean just this last month I Greg Bishop did an outstanding piece on Drew Brees that kind of focused on his legacy yeah, exactly. that I really enjoyed right. and uh I mean it's easy for me to enjoy a Drew Brees piece I'll admit that and I'll admit it was easy for me to love um the piece on Jack Eichel that was in the the latest issue and you know, it's an interesting just thing about like his routine that was in there, like about talking about him, like like he he gave this detailed answer about his routine before a game. He's like, you know, I I put these pants on and then I take two Advil and then I eat a banana and then I have the same, just like you know stuff like that. I just don't feel like you're gonna read that, you know, in certain places. I feel like it's unique to SI. So that's kind of where I stand. Um, I want to ask you about. A couple of the athletes. I noticed on Twitter that you were you were kind of going. I don't want to say f- arguing because that's not even right, but you were perplexed a little bit by kind of a blanket statement that someone issued about the way the media handled Serena Williams. I think it was the car accident thing that the person was speaking of specifically. And you you take the you took oh, the, oh yeah Venus yeah Venus oh yeah what did I say Serena. I'm sorry. That's right. Uh, but you kind of took the point that you had thought that the tennis media was particularly respectful and covered it well, and that 
you guys are kind of getting lumped in with the salacious, maybe TMZ side of it or whatever. And it made me kind of think of the Williams sisters in general. And of course, Serena is the more polarizing. It seems like every year there's kind of this big thing with her. And it's tricky because it's really, you know, it's, oh, people are treating her this way because she's a minority or because she's a woman or no, people are being fair or they're not. It's it's like, it's not, it, there's this other part with the William, there's this whole other universe there that seems just really tricky to navigate. And I just want, I was just curious about why you thought you should jump in and kind of defend tennis media in that um, moment and, and what you think about covering them in, in general, because you've done such a great job of it over the years. And if it is trickier to write a story about the Williams sisters, then the same story might be about, you know, 20 years ago, if it was about Martina Hingis or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're two different. I mean, my point with Venus, uh, I mean, one thing I think when people talk about the media, I think there's a lot of times we, we got to really drill down and figure out what media we're talking about. And the media didn't give, so-and-so a fair shot. And you want to say, well, what, what media are you talking about? Uh, that's an awfully broad brush. And when an athlete says, oh, you know, all my doubters in the media, and you sort of want to say, well, who, who are you referring to? I mean, I don't, I'm looking around the room, and I'm seeing a lot of responsible, conscientious, informed reporters. I don't, I don't think anyone in this room uh, doubted you or encouraged you to retire or predicted that you would. I mean, I, I think that uh, athletes, like all of us, tell themselves stories, and a lot of uh, – this, this whole notion of uh, everyone's against me and you know, we shocked the world. And a lot of times the media falls into that. And I, I, I like to push back sometimes and say, well, who, who specifically when who specifically was the one encouraging you to retire? Cause it, it certainly wasn't anyone that I came into contact with. Um, with, with Venus, there was somebody who sort of talked about the, the unfair treatment. She was involved in an automobile accident and um, it, it ended up, sort of at, at the end of the day, she really didn't have culpability. And the, the charges were fairly severe, and there were lawyers involved, and there were publicists. At the end of the day, she was, you know, essentially exonerated. And my point was that the, the tennis media was extraordinarily, I, I thought, restrained and awfully responsible. It wasn't writing salacious stories based on what were just allegations or just a lawyer's brief. Um so when, when someone took issue with that, I, I wanted to push back and uh, defend the brethren a little bit. Um, with the Williams sisters in general, yeah, I mean, I, I in some ways, have a hard time concealing my bias. And I, I, some of this is just personal, and I sort of came up with them. And we, the year I started covering tennis was basically the year that they broke through, and my first book was largely about them. So I sort of always... I'm probably not the best person to ask. I mean, certainly race often bubbles very close to the surface when it comes to them. It sometimes can be very hard to write about them. And I, I think I wrote this once. I said, if you said, you know, Venus, Serena Williams has a great forehand. Somebody would say, Steffi Graf's forehand was better, but you're just politically correct. So you feel like you have to mention it. And someone else would say, you racist, if she were blonde, you would talk about her backhand just as much. Um, a lot of people, sort of the Williams and Serena in particular, have become prisms, and a lot of times there's been 
um, you know, that there have been some dog whistles and sometimes even not. I mean, you know, Jason Whitlock famously wrote a column about Serena's crip walk, never mind that she had just won a gold medal. So, I, you know, race is certainly a topic that is often, um, you know, it's, again, it's oftentimes it's very close to the surface when, when writing about them. But I think if you, if you take a step back and you look at these two sisters that came up, shared a bedroom, grew up in Compton, they are the, you know, between the two of them, they've won more majors over the last 25 years than any two other women. I always say it's like if Tiger Wolf, if Tiger Woods had a brother named, uh, you know, Jeff Lyon, who, okay. who was the equivalent of Phil <laughs> Nicholson. I mean, it's just a right. remarkable, remarkable story. And I always say, what's the absolute worst thing? All the you know, Serena Williams, she can be, I, I hate this word, but we will hear that she is polarizing, which she really is a complex individual. And it's not everything has to be binary and not everything has to be, you know, good or bad. But what is the absolute worst thing that you could say about either of them? They've been in the limelight now. I mean, these, these have been public figures for 25 years. They are still in 2019, not only playing in the Australian Open next week, but are among the two players to beat. Venus is 39. Serena Williams is 37. And what's the absolute worst thing you could say about them? That, uh, well, I think I know. You know. In the course of competition, in the course of competition once, they, you know, Serena lost her temper. Well, um, I would say I she's mean, an incredibly poor think, sport. Right. I, I would I counter mean, that. I, I would counter that she's, uh, she's, she's in the heat of competition. She's occasionally behaved regrettably. Okay. Um, having played thousands and thousands of times on international stages. Um, I mean, again, I, I get it. Some people like them. Some people don't. That They're entitled. But I think sort of big picture, this is one of the great, great sports stories that's going to unfold in my lifetime. And for people to diminish that by picking on little things, you know, Venus was rude in a press conference or, um, you know, again, so Serena's behavior at the U.S. Open final was, wasn't her finest moment. That, that's fine. But I just think um, you, you take a step back and you say, here are two sisters who came to this sport. They've been playing for a quarter of a century now. Uh, it's just a crazy. I mean, this is just, this is a good, I always say it's the most underrated story in sports, no matter how many times we hear it. And, um, you know, I mean, it, it would be, be naive to think that there isn't a, element of race that uh in, informs this story but i just think eventually this, I, I think this story is going to age really well and i think when the dust settles or we reflect on the williams sisters 50 years from now serena you know losing it at the u.s open is going to be the most minor of footnotes and the takeaway is going to be these are two of the absolute towering figures of sports of the last hundred years did you read the tiger woods book that came out this year Armin's, um, I kind of sort. I mean, I, I think I have it, and I read parts of it. I only bring it up. Are, are you even Ar- Armin Katayan's book? Yeah, him and Jeff Benedict wrote it, and yeah, it, right, it's right, a great right. book. And I mean, you, I've okay. My brother, huge Tiger Woods fan. Me, never liked Tiger Woods. I read the book, and I said, "Oh, I'm so justified. Like, what a piece of garbage Tiger Woods is as a human being." I don't take anything away from him as a golfer, and I just think both of those things would be can be true. My brother gets real defensive, you know. I don't care about anything he did to. A, I don't care he left his girlfriend in the lobby with her bags. 
You know, I don't care about any of that stuff. He's the greatest golfer of all time. That's all I care about is the golf. You know, we get into this argument. Well, why can't both be true? And I guess I was kind of thinking that while you were talking about Serena like and, and, and Venus as well. Like, why can't both things be true? Why can't it be the greatest story in the history of tennis, as you said? And also, by the way, like the way Serena Williams acted in that situation with the judge last year was absurd. Like, you just like. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, pe- people are complex and elite performers and athletes, I think, especially in individual sports, which I, I think is a, I think one distinction we don't draw enough of is how different individual sports are from team sports. But look, I mean, people are complex. Geniuses are complex. Extraordinary performers are complex. And yeah, I mean, there are things Serena Williams does that even her biggest fans at some level probably ought to admit are not defensible. And there are also a lot of things Serena Williams does that even her biggest critics have to admit are extraordinary. Um, right. I mean, I, you know, I, I got my own feelings about Tiger Woods um, that probably veer closer to yours. So I, I, I would be, I, I think your, your point is well taken, but um, I, I'm reluctant to draw too many parallels between. Yeah, no, I didn't you know, want to look at Tiger Woods' yeah. bad acts and look at Serena Williams. Bad right, acts no, I didn't want to do that. Prefer, but yeah, uh, but no, no, I, I think your your larger point is right. And I think one thing about this uh, this political moment and social media is it doesn't always leave a whole lot of room for nuance. Right, and people are complicated. I mean, what even even the U.S. Open that U.S. Open final. Um, I, I can't condone what Serena Williams did. I mean, I thought some of that was pretty outrageous, but I also think that chair umpire was kind of sort of out of line. And at some point discretion comes in and you swallow the whistle. And at some point you give superstars a certain nod. Um, it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of real estate open to sort of have a complex discussion. Either Serena Williams was, absolutely outrageous and out of line and should never play tennis again or else she was the victim of racism, sexism, fascism, and uh, it was owed an apology. There didn't seem to be a whole lot of room for uh, a nuanced discussion, but I think it, it really wasn't binary. It was a pretty complicated situation when multiple people probably should have acted differently. Fair enough. The sports guys are here with John Wertheim finishing up. Um John's one of the uh, sportscaster OGs, been with us since way back in the beginning in 2011. Um, nice enough to make some time for the season. That was the first time uh, my name has ever been used in the sentence OG. So, well, I, I, always uh, tell, I always tell Jeff Passan that here it stands for original guest. You know, right. He was the original. Right. Jeff Passan was the original guest. So you're one of the original guests. But um, let's finish on another interesting guy. Let's, talk, let's take a minute to talk about John Jones because you wrote about him um, recently. And he fought recently, and he's this guy who talk about complicated, right? Because in one sense, it's like he might be the best to ever do what he does, and then in another sense, he's just always like suspended, like he's always like they they had to move his fights, you know, like Daniel Cormier, like like I think of John Jones, I think of like Daniel Cormier crying backstage because you know Dana White has to tell him that. Jones failed the test and he's going to miss out on this payday at UFC 200 or whatever it was, or, you know, now there, he's about to fight again and there's another sp- suspicious action. I, and I don't, you know, I don't know all the details, but John Bones Jones is complicated, right? So where do you stand on John Jones in 2019? 
Is he more the potentially greatest MMA guy, or is he more the guy who just can't get out of his own way to really be as great as he could be? Or is maybe both true again? Let me tell you about individual sport athletes. Because I don't think we draw this distinction between team sport athletes quite sharply enough. Um, no, I, don't, I mean, John Jones is a really, really complicated guy. I'll tell you, um, he, he had come to New York as part of uh, the promotion before this UFC 232 card. And I said, yeah, I, I, just, I couldn't get to any of the events. I was busy. And they basically said, well, he can come to you. I said, well, I'm at 60 Minutes. I'm at my office on 57th Street. All right, we'll be there. So John Jones showed up at the 60 Minutes office. I mean, this is, and I say this, this is the length to which uh, he and the UFC were sort of going to, I think, to, uh, to sort of do some, some damage control and, and to put him. I mean, it, it, he's a really, really complex guy because there are multiple. I, in some ways, he's extraordinarily likable. And in some ways, again, he does things that are absolutely indefensible. Right. A couple of things that interest me about him. One of them is that his two older brothers, well, he's, he's a middle child, but his older brother and his younger brother both played in the NFL. Chandler Jones still plays for uh, the Cardinals. Right. Former Patriot. So Good player. A, a lot of the, yeah. So, but I mean, he's, so he's had experience with that, with transition to being a superstar about the burden of celebrity, about the pressures. I mean, he had firsthand experience to that. The other thing, too, you know, he grew up in upstate New York in a, you know, in a two-parent household, and his parents were both involved in the clergy. Um, I, I hate to put it in these crass terms, but he's a guy who knows right from wrong, and yet he has made some decisions that are just absolutely baffling to the point of being self-sabotaging. I mean, this is a guy we should be talking about in the same breath. I mean, you just name your, you know, of... of Trout and Harper and Curry and LeBron and Durant. I mean, this is this should be an absolute A-list superstar athlete. I mean, this is probably the best MMA fighter of all time. For all intents, he's undefeated. He's a terrific athlete. When you know he's he's there's an element of wisdom when he speaks, and there's also this element of absolute self-sabotaging stupidity. And there have been some failed drug tests. There's been a, a accident there's i mean there have been multiple decisions that you just you wonder if he's trying to ruin his career and yet you sit across from him and you talk to him for i mean i i haven't talked to him for 90 minutes or so this wasn't uh a hit and run bad choice of words but this this wasn't a quick interview i mean this was sort of 90 minutes of, of him taking some fairly tough questions and you say not only is this guy very difficult not to like there's a lot of wisdom here this is really a thoughtful guy this is a guy who really should be the leading light for his sport and yet he does other things where you say he just can't get out of his own way um it's it's mystifying and this last ufc card had to be moved from las vegas to los angeles because he would not be sanctioned by the nevada state athletic commission i mean he says that the specimen that they found was still residual from the previous failed doping test. Um, but still, he wouldn't be sanctioned in Nevada. There's a lot of drama that trails this guy. There's a lot of sort of, there's a bad whiff. And yet in other ways, he's this exemplary athlete and a really thoughtful guy. So, I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to sort of see, I mean, I hate, hate to 
which John Jones wins out. I mean, I don't know if it's that dramatic, but it's going to be interesting to sort of see what happens for the rest of his career because I'm, I'm fighting alone. This guy should be, you know, Floyd Mayweather. And on personality alone, this guy could be one of these exceedingly likable athletes. But that's offset by some things he does, which are just absolutely inexcusable. So it's um, he's a complicated guy. And, and I've, I've spoken to him a number of times. Um, went out to New Mexico in like 2010 when he was first starting his ascent. And in some ways he's a completely different person. And he, he'll admit this, that celebrity and stardom and money has, has changed him and not necessarily for the better. And in other ways, he's very much the same guy. And I think he has a chance to go down as one of the great, great fighters in history. And he also has a chance to go down as one of these tragic figures in sports who just couldn't get his shit together and made so many bad choices. They ended up overwhelming his talent. So um, I I think it's kind of a a sleeper story for sports media in general, because here's a guy who's absolutely dominating his sport. And yet there is this sort of cloud of suspicion and and this sort of, it's not necessarily nefarious to me so much as it's almost self-sabotage, but um, you know, basically can John Jones do what no one else, uh, can do and unseat John Jones is sort of uh, the right. overarching question. Right. And I hope he can. I mean, he's from Rochester. You know, he's close to where I grew up. I You know, like I said, he's mostly likable. Obviously, he does these indefensible things, which I wouldn't even try to defend because sometimes I don't even understand them. Um, but, you know, I, like, I, I hope I hope he can figure it out before it's too late. You know, I hope he's not kind of like Mike Tyson where he discovers all this wisdom, you know, 10 years after you wish he could have had the wisdom when he was still active and, and viable and right. whatever. But, um, let me, let me ask you this real quick about UFC. Uh, do you see, do you see Brock Lesnar getting that big, huge money fight against, I don't know, maybe Cormier or maybe even Jones or someone like that? A, a huge, huge, you know, maybe it doesn't match up in the ring, but something they can promote the shit out of that gets all this crossover attention and makes all this money. Um, is that? Do you think that's in the cards? Can that happen still? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I mean, ironically, John Jones would is a potential opponent for Brock Lesnar. Right. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I'm I'm skeptical of, of Brock Lesnar, and I think the UFC doesn't necessarily uh, distinguish itself when it flirts with Brock Lesnar. Obviously there's, there's a lot of, there's box office appeal. Uh, but to, to me, it's they they made a mistake with CM Punk and, uh, Brock Lesnar's a different quality athlete, a different quality fighter, but I'm, I'm not sure it's a great long game play to, uh, sort of be backing on Brock Lesnar as your next great heavyweight, uh, star. Do you think they made a mistake with CM Punk? Don't you think that second fight in a way, I know it didn't do as well on pay-per-view and box office as the first one did, which did do really well and kind of justified their interest in him from a business standpoint. But I thought he did enough in the second fight, despite being dominated again, for them to at least be able to tell a story of, look, it. this is a 35-ish year old guy who had a dream. He worked his ass off. He did everything he could. And in the end, he was just not quite good enough to, to beat the guys here. But but he tried and he, he worked. I mean, isn't there a good story? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they sort of lose. I, I actually, and the other thing, too, I, I, they 
set me up with uh, CM Punk. We had lunch in Chicago. Mm-hmm. That's as enjoyable an hour as I've spent with an athlete as I can recall. I mean, he, he's an awesome guy, and he he got it. I mean, he was there was a level of humility there. I, I just thought um, if you have a real like Johnny Morton, the ex NFL player, remember Johnny Morton? Yeah. He he entered MMA and he just he got carried out on a stretcher and and he failed a drug test afterwards, but. Johnny Morton thinks he can fight, and he gets carried out on a stretcher. And I said, you know what? That that sort of legitimizes MMA. That these aren't just barroom tough guys. There's a real skill set here. And you have this incredibly elite athlete who comes right from the NFL, and he can't leave the. I don't think it was an octagon, but he can't leave the ring under his own power. That to me tells you something about the legitimacy of this sport. These guys are real athletes. If CM Punk won. You'd say, here's a guy who comes from, you know, fake WWE, trains for a year, and suddenly he's winning fights. That wouldn't have been a good look. And when he loses, as he did, you sort of say, why were they hyping this guy up and giving him chances? And there are all these guys who have been fighting forever who can't get on a card. Why are they making special dispensation to uh, this guy simply because he's a celebrity? I I sort of thought UFC was going to lose either way, and and I think think they did. I mean, again, if, if Greg Hardy fighting brings with it a whole other set of questions, but just strictly from an athletic standpoint, if, if Greg Hardy doesn't do well, I think that helps legitimize MMA and UFC. I'm not sure CM Punk one way or the other is going to help the cause. I mean, you either say, of course, he's not going to win. He's, no, no one, the best athlete in the world couldn't train for a year and suddenly get in there and hold their own. And if for some reason he had one, well, that doesn't make anyone look good either. So I, I, I didn't quite get that apart from obviously you're bringing in a guy who has a huge following and he's going to goose, goose the paper. Yeah, I mean, it was a business but decision. I'm, I'm right? about to go in the Lincoln Tunnel here. I may, I may lose you in a second. All right, let's say goodbye then. Um, we can end on that. We can pick up on that again because I'm not going to let you stay away for a year and a half again. Uh, I'm going to chase you down in the spring or something like that and we can talk some more. Uh, John Wertheim is the executive editor at SI. Uh, he's a correspondent for 60 Minutes. He's a senior writer at SI. He writes about tennis and MMA. And he's a great dude who's always been there for this show and been really great to me over the years. So I want to thank you for that. And uh, thank you for all the time tonight. And let's uh, let's talk again soon. You got it. All right. Yeah, drive. No, pleasure. Any Anytime. Thank you, Mr. Wertheim. All right. Thanks. We'll talk soon. Tall, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hauling her down. She was a black haired beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high. I want to thank John Wertheim for being the first guest of season nine of the Sportscasters. We're going to get to Eddie Trunk in a minute. First, What's up, Got Update the book club, and I'm going to tell you right now, I got nothing. Absolutely nothing going on in the book club right now. Someone reached out to me on Twitter, uh, a guy named Bob Letterer, and uh, he wanted to send me a book that he wrote about Joe Namath. And I said I'd be glad to read it and promote it on the podcast. I haven't haven't seen the book uh, in the mail. He said he was going to mail one out. It's beyondbroadwayjoe.com is the website. 
Uh, so Bob Letterer, if I don't hear from him or see the book, this will probably be the only time I mention it. Uh, but since he was nice enough to reach out, I figured I'd give him a plug. Uh, the book is called Beyond Broadway Joe. And again, you can find more information uh, beyondbroadwayjoe.com. Or you can follow, follow Bob on Twitter. He's at Bob F-L-E-D-E-R-E-R. Other than that, I don't have much going on. I didn't read much over Christmas break in terms of sports books. I did read for fun a little bit. I kind of got this obsession with trolling the Apple bookstore and finding ebooks that have been reduced to like two bucks. You know, they're so cheap that I might as well buy them, but damn well know there's a good chance I'll never read them. But why not for two bucks, right? Like today, I bought this book called Three Days in January about Dwight Eisenhower's final mission as president. It was a dollar ninety nine. It looked like a great book. I'd love to read it. I have no idea if I'll ever read it. But for one ninety nine, like how could I go wrong, right? So I've been doing that, building up my Apple ebook collection. I have like over a hundred books. I bought the this is what I this is what I bought over Christmas, right? I bought the Robin Williams book that came out called Robin. I bought a Billy Joel book by a guy named Fred something. Uh, I bought that Three Days in January book. I bought this book called Hockey Dad by Bob McKenzie, which I'm actually reading. Um, which is really cool because, like, you know, I got in my head that there's a chance I might be a hockey dad now that my two-year-old daughter skates. But uh, we'll see about that. But so I did that over break, and honestly, I didn't read much. I kind of stayed away from it and uh, just kind of refreshed because I read so much in the fall, right? We had so many books in the fall. Uh, so I just kind of did that. But look, at today's about these guests. We have great guests today. And there's not much going on in the world of books. So what we're going to do is I'm going to take a break. We'll come back with Eddie Trunk, and then I'll be back on the other side of that for one last thing where I'll tell you about my holiday. So if you're interested in that, stick around. Uh, but let's take a break. We'll be right back with the voice of hard rock and heavy metal, Eddie Trunk. Our next guest is from New Jersey, and he was the host of that metal show. He's the voice of hard rock and heavy metal, and he currently does a show Monday through Friday on Sirius XM Volume. He's making a second appearance on the podcast today, a warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Eddie Trunk. What's up, Eddie? How you doing, man? Thanks, uh, thanks so much for doing this. I'm all good, Steve. Thank you for having me. All right, let's start with this, because i got to get you fired up, get you into the groove here. Let me ask you the question I asked my uh, my cousin at Christmas, who's a, a big Giant fan as well. Having the benefit of hindsight and seeing the whole season, if you go back to April, would you still pick Barkley or would you take Darnold or maybe even a different quarterback? But I assume Darnold would make the most sense since we know Cleveland wouldn't be changing their pick. So Baker's gone. You're up. You sticking with Barkley or are you going for Darnold or someone else? Man, um... Really tough question. Right? It really is. <laughs> it's a that's a that's a tough that's a tough one to think about because obviously hindsight is uh, twenty twenty. I, I mean, there's no way anybody could be disappointed with what Barkley's done in his rookie season. He looks like not only is he going to be a tremendous player, but he's also um, uh, clearly a, a a real good kid too, and you know definitely a guy you want on your team as far as just his personality and his demeanor his willingness to learn and all that. So 
Um, it's hard to say you'd want to give him back, but uh, I mean, I just, I don't know. I don't know if you can accurately answer that question yet because it's probably too soon. If Darnold turns out to be a, a tremendous quarterback that they get 15 years out of, then yeah, I mean, quarter, uh, running backs tend to burn quick. So in five, six years, you know, Barkley could be shot. So it could be one of those things for sure. But uh, I, I, I don't know, man. It's a really tough thing to say. And I just don't know if they get a couple more years out or not at least another year out of Eli here, or if this is going to be a case where, you know, talk about Foles coming in, maybe trying to make a move for him or drafting someone or Bill. I don't know. It's really, there's really a lot of question marks with the giants right now. It's a really difficult thing. If you're a giants fan to say, you don't want Barkley on your team and you'd rather have somebody else, but um, that could vary. I wouldn't be surprised if that's how people feel down the line, especially one of the things I wonder about is with Barkley, you know, the way he runs and the way he keeps moving and wants to stay upright and stuff, you always worry about him, at least I do, getting hurt. So if you lose him early in his career or something, I mean, it's just always in the back of my mind. But I, I got to just hope that they find a way for it to all play out the right way. My favorite Barkley stat this year is zero fumbles lost. Like, you can just count on him to take care of the ball, get four yards of play and break one every week. Seemed like every week he broke one. One way or another, it's like those three things happened. He's an electric dude. He's awesome. Yeah, and imagine, imagine, if, he had a, imagine if he had a great offensive line to run behind. Yeah, terrible offensive line. So, I mean, even with that. Yeah, that's what I mean. If, yeah. he, if he had blocking and he had that sort of uh, support, it, it could be those the sky's the limit of what he could have done. I worry like you do that, you know, it, hap- it happens like it happened to Peterson. Like there's going to be that one season where he bounces one outside and he's eight yards down the field and he gets tackled and it doesn't look like anything and the camera kind of goes away, but then he gets up slow and, you know, and then Adam Schefter's tweeting on Monday that the MRI confirms it's an ACL and you just had that dead year or whatever. You know what I mean? Like that's what I always worry about with every running back really, you know? So, yeah, well, they have such a short lifespan and the way he runs so aggressively and, the way he moves so quickly and spins and all that. I mean, you, you can't, you know, his, his hero is Barry Sanders and obviously Barry Sanders uh, ended his career really early voluntarily, but still, you know, you, you just wonder, you know, how many years a guy like that can have. I mean, certainly you hope five, six good years or more, but it's just, it's just hard to say, but at the moment, you know, as a, as a fan of the team, I mean, it's hard not to root for that guy, man, because not only is he a, electrifying player but he he says all the right things and he seems to be a really really good kid with his head on straight so i think you know to me i think the bigger issue with I mean, not a bigger issue but the interesting issue for the giants with him is going to be how it affects beckham because beckham is so used to all the publicity all you know being the biggest star on the team one of the biggest stars in the league and all that and suddenly man this spotlight has totally shifted to this kid and, you know, all these guys have these egos. You just wonder if all of a sudden, you know, that's going to start. You hope Beckham embraces that and, and it's having two megastars is, is better than one. But you just don't know if that's going to start playing with his head a little bit and uh, his ego. But, I, I mean, that all remains to be seen. You know, I, it's going to be fascinating to watch. I mean, I love their weapons. Like, if they can keep the locker room together, improve the offensive line. I mean, Sterling Shepard is a great slot receiver. You know, Ingram has been really good as a tight end. You know, maybe not the best blocker, but certainly a great playmaker. You know, catching the ball. Barkley's a stud. Beckham's a, 
you know, like you said, a stud. Just can you get all? Can you get you get enough balls for everyone? Can you keep everyone happy? And then the big question I think going into this offseason is: Do you want to try to squeeze another year out of Eli, or do you move on now and and try to, like you said, there's going to be some QB musical chairs probably in the league again, like there was last year, and we've seen that you can spend a hundred million dollars on a QB like Minnesota does, and it doesn't necessarily make you better off. Um. Yeah, Evan Engram really came on at the end. You know, he was co- overcoming an injury, and then with him out of the picture, the uh, with with Beckham out of the picture, him starting to get a lot of balls. I mean, he's it, people forget what a threat he can be. He hasn't been fully healthy all year, so yeah, that, that was really interesting to see. the The other thing too is, you, you know, with with Barkley, you know, you want an offense, you want improvement on the offensive line, but. Obviously, if, with Beckham there, that helps his game tremendously too, because Beckham's going to draw so many people away from, you know, the box that he's, you know, he's got to command double coverage, at, uh, double coverage at least. So that it's really a potent thing. You really hope they can keep that together. And I know Gentleman said there's no way he's trading Beckham, so it, it could be a couple tweaks to that offensive line. I mean, I'm not an Eli hater. I, I understand. I think that the think that the writing is on the wall at some point i i do believe that he as he's shown he, he can you know there's still a lot of bonehead stuff but he can also still make some great throws and he is obviously um, not a mobile quarterback that works against him but he's a durable quarterback and i, I think that outside you know outside of getting a guy like nick Foles who's going to command you know, 20 million plus outside of going the route like that. I don't see a scenario where Eli isn't back for at least half of next year, because if they end up getting a young guy or somebody they got to work on, uh, they, they're going to, you know, Eli's going to have to start the season. I mean, I wouldn't mind having Eli there and the sort of heir apparent on the team to be mentored to some degree. Uh, but I just don't know if there's anyone coming out of the draft or anyone that they feel that strongly about that could even be that guy. And um, I still, as a Giants fan, and I've never gotten an answer to this, I still don't know why Davis Webb was cut. I, I don't that that'll. There's no one that talks about that. There's no one that explains that he was picked up by the Jets. I, I, I just he seemed like such a project they were so high on, cannon for an arm and making no money, and for whatever reason, they cut him and, and signed Lauletta, who I guess is the, is the current project, but still, I, I don't, nobody ever got a chance to really see Davis Webb, and I would love to know what he is or was. So, I, I, it's, it's all very confusing, and you just got to hope that somehow they, they, they know better than I do. I don't remember the exact number, but I saw the combined record for the Jets and the Giants the last like three seasons or something. It just doesn't seem right. You need at least one good football team in New York every year, so um, it'll be interesting to see. Like, Here's one other thing that I yeah. just read. I just read this minutes ago that I think is really interesting about the uh, the that could be really interesting. There's five teams eligible or not eligible, but on the schedule for to be on Hard Knocks next season because you can. There's I didn't know that. I didn't know this. There's like certain criteria. For yeah, where they can knocks. force you. Yep. Yeah, they force you, and there's five teams that are fit all the criteria that are potential for being hard knocks on hard knocks, and and one of them is the Giants, who have obviously never been on there, and they're one of five, and 
the this article I read had their odds are pretty high of being the team that the NFL is basically going to force to to do this. The number one team they said Raiders was the Raiders. Raiders, yeah, yeah. But they and and all the drama and storylines there. But they're saying that that's such a mess that the NFL probably wouldn't want to feature that. So <laughs> they're saying the Giants with Barkley and Beckham and New York and and you know the Eli drama that the, they really felt the Giants could strongly uh, be the, the, the team that, that gets the nod for hard knocks, which would be really crazy if that happened because the Giants are just such a team, so, so not the team that sort of shows the inner workings like that. Yeah, I, I always like, I, I watch, I'm a, I love hard knocks, I watch it every year, and I always sit back and think, what well, I want my team to be on the show, and I think I would just to be able to, I think, make a connection with some of the guys the way you do, but you know, then sometimes you see some of the things that happen. You know, like it was so embarrassing for Cleveland last year. You just knew Hugh Jackson was such a disaster. Like I can't believe he's getting yeah. he's getting interviews. But you know, I don't know. Like I know Sean Payton has said he will never cut a player on camera. So as long as he's a Saints coach, I I think it would be hard, even with the rules in place, to get them to do it. Because um, you don't want what happened with the NHL. The NHL had the um, the show built around around the Winter Classic. And then on HBO, it's doing really well. And then Mike Babcock, you know, wouldn't wouldn't cooperate really. So then HBO backed out, and now it's like a half an hour disaster of a show on the NHL Network that nobody watched this year, even knew existed. So I don't yeah, know for sure. Um, I would talk Giants with you for a long time, but I, I want to transition to get some rock talk in because I have the voice of hard rock and heavy metal on the show. And I was listening. I was listening to your show today, and you're talking about how. You know, anyone can have a podcast. I'm like, oh, no, I hope he doesn't say, and yeah, I got this jabroni from Buffalo bothering me right now to be on his. But um, I wanted to talk to you. Oh, no, no, I, I just, you know, <laughs> no, just I didn't take it on the media world today more than anything. Oh, yeah. No, I agreed with, you, with what you're saying. I was just uh, I was just like, oh, my God, it'd be funny if you just ripped me right now. But um, quick review. So I was at the last potentially the last Rick Emmett show ever in the United States a couple weeks ago. Um. He has kind of said that, you know, he's got he had this last show, which was in Buffalo on December 3rd. And then there's two in January in Toronto. And he said that after that, he's going to take eight months. He's going to the beach with his wife. And if you asked him right now, he'd say he's retired. He said his visa expired when that was the last day. The show was that was the last day for his visa. He's not going to renew it right now. Um, we know Triumph is probably a dead issue. And it got me to thinking it was a great show, by the way. I mean, he still can bring it. He's still great. Um, but I respect his decision if he feels like now's the time. And I'm going to see Bob Seeger in Buffalo in a couple of weeks, who also says this is pretty much the time. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing the, the acts that I kind of view as like the bands and the albums that I got to love because of my dad. I see that their time is kind of coming to an end. Like Lou Graham, I think, announced the retirement for solo shows. And, I mean, even if we don't believe these retirement announcements – these guys are getting older. At some point, it will be over. And then I think about the bands that I discovered in the, in the 90s when I was in high school, you know, my bands. And so many of them are not going to stand the test of time the way some of my dad, quote-unquote, bands did because of death, all the, all the guys that have, have died in some of the bands. And it just makes me, like, kind of look ahead 10 years and think, am I going to have any concerts left to go to? Because I have not been good, I have to admit at discovering new bands. I'm trying with Ghost and Greta Van Fleet and the Struts and things like that, but I just have not been great at it. 
So I'm a little worried, Eddie. Calm me down. Get me off the get me off the ledge here, can you? Well, I mean, I, I you know, I think that there. Look, I mean, I think that there are some some great rock bands out there. Um, the 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 problem is much like in the media world. The problem is finding a way to stand out, finding a way to gain an audience. Everybody has very short attention spans. And I, I think that the challenge is not necessarily exclusive to rock. I think rock is a little more challenged because it's not getting the airplay and the front row seat that it deserves. But I do, I am optimistic and, and rock does do extremely well on the live circuit. I mean, there are a lot of younger bands out there that do great business, whether it be Avenged Sevenfold or Five Finger Death Punch, whether you like the bands or not, kind of irrelevant if you're just rooting for the genre they do well for rock so i am I'm, I'm optimistic that 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 there are bands uh, coming down the pike and there's several that i like and feel strongly about and i just hope that the people take the time to discover them and and get behind them and find something they like i think in light of the huge success of greta van fleet you're going to see a slew of sort of riff based rock bands like that that are very young trying to make a move. I mean, I'm seeing it already. I think you're going to see a ton of that coming. Um, whether that's good or not remains to be seen, but I think you're going to see a ton of it. So maybe a couple of those will break through. I mean, I've heard some, you know, I've been tur- I'm turned on to new bands all the time that I like. I mean, does it measure up to the old stuff? No. I mean, I think the biggest problem though, is that music doesn't sit in the same place as it sat when those bands break broke through. I mean, you mentioned Rick Emmett when Triumph came through and started out. I mean, all those bands, they were, that's, that's what it was all about was the, the music and the excitement of the music and waiting for that concert ticket to go on sale and waiting for that record and waiting in line at the store to get the record. Everything is completely changed now the way people get music. So I think the bigger issue is people just don't have the same passion and connection and commitment to music and it just doesn't mean as much the way they get it and the way it's delivered. And I think that's really the bigger, the bigger obstacle right now for music in general and certainly rock because it just doesn't get the airplay. It should. I remember when, um, when, uh, you know, I'm a big program fan and when versus came out, um, I wanting so badly to go to get it like at midnight at the record, at the wall in the mall. And, uh, my mom like, no, you have school in the morning, but I'll take you after school. And then I remember finally, I think it was when Binaural came out, or maybe Yield, uh, being able, it must have been Binaural because I remember going to, to this big rec, uh, like media play in Buffalo and waiting in line at midnight, and um, there was a lot of young girls there, and I was thinking, wow, like, good for Pearl Jam. Like, they're really reaching, they're really increasing the, the female audience here. And then they wheeled out this giant card of Britney Spears CDs that were also coming out that night. So I was like, "Oh, all right, <laughs> maybe they're not here for binaural, but um, yeah, that that's obviously lost because even I am guilty of, you know, like wanting to get a record that comes out on Friday, and then instead of going to the record store, pulling my phone out of my pocket and bringing it up on Apple Music and saying to myself, "Well, I already have it right here, so why would I go buy it? Yeah, I want it, but I'll just put it on my Christmas list or something, and someone will buy it for me then, you know, like so I'm guilty of it too, but um." Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with I mean, you know, it's not, it is the way it is. I mean, everything changes and moves forward, and, and uh, it's the way the business is set up right now, and there's there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, 
I mean, it, it's unfortunate that it's like that, and it's unfortunate that people don't have the same connection to it, but it's just different now. So you can't blame anybody. It's what the business has become. I get it. I understand it. Uh, I just think that that is the biggest issue, is the connection to the music. It's it's just delivered in a whole different way, and it sits in people's level of importance in a whole different way because you can hear anything you can get anything you want whenever you want it's just it's a whole different it's just a whole different meaning to people than it once was so you got to hope that there's a way that some some of these bands break through and that they can deliver on the live stage and and be great and continue to to build their careers and i'm pretty confident still that one or two really big ones break through really really pop and it could really create a whole wave. So that's what I'm kind of rooting for. Uh, Greg Renoff was on the show before Christmas. We were kind of talking about just having fun, talking about Van Halen, you know, dreaming about lineups, whatever, tossing some stuff around. We were kind of talking about how, you know, in his book, Van Halen Rising, you know, about these guys kind of started playing cream songs and, and playing in clubs and restaurants. And I was actually listening to an interview you did with, I don't remember if it was the one you did with all three guys from Triumph or if it was the one you did with just Rick Emmett when his album came out, but he was talking too about back in the seventies or maybe even into the eighties, these bands would get together and they would play these shows and they play these covers. And then they would kind of make this decision. it's like, okay, we're going to really go for it now. And I know rush said they did this too, where we're not going to play covers anymore. We're going to go to all originals. I think Rick Emmett said something on your show about how like all of a sudden he was buying his groceries on credit card. Cause they walked away from all this money to kind of make that commitment. But Greg and I were talking, I wonder what your opinion is too is even though they had to make that transition, they maybe benefited quite a bit from gaining the experience of playing the live gigs and honing their live acts, um, being the cover band initially and then making that transition. And obviously that scene doesn't really exist today where you you know, go to the drive-in on a Thursday night and see this local band play covers and then you know, a couple years later they're Talus or whatever like we had in Buffalo when my parents were kids. You think that that has kind of hurt the the development of bands, maybe? Um, I don't follow you. What aspect of it? Well, you know, you have these bands. These bands that became huge bands. But before they were huge bands, they were basically cover bands that kind of honed their skills as live entertainers through other people's music. And then they made the transition and worked up their own music. But once they got those songs, they already had this, like, base as entertainers built up. You know, they knew how to be to work a crowd and how to be a great live act. They kind of like hone that in a way, you know, earlier. So I'm just like looking at like a development standpoint for these bands that maybe they don't, you know, they're, they're they don't have that step anymore. Cause there really isn't that scene. You know, we don't have bands at high school dances anymore or at drive-ins or bowling alleys, things like that. Yeah. Well, it depends. Yeah. It kind of, it kind of depends upon where you, you're talking about, because in some areas there is, uh, a scene you know in, in some areas there is um places where uh there is a, a, a bit of a scene of bands always out playing like i go speaking of greg greg lives in tulsa and i go to tulsa quite often because i have a promoter that i work with there and you walk through downtown tulsa and on any given night of the week there's five six clubs with bands playing in them are mostly original bands too there's a lot of places like that austin texas there there's there's uh, Nashville to some degree. So it's, it, there's de- it's definitely out there. And I think bands are definitely still sort of honing their chops like that. 
putting in the work, learning their craft. There, there are others, though, that are just trying to look for the quick, easy way. And, and I think that's a problem. I think that the rise of these talent shows on TV, although many don't focus or feature on rock, rock in any way, it's, it's like, okay, maybe there's a way that we can, you know, just, just put something together that's what's happening now and, and bust through. But you can't buy it. I mean, there are a lot of bands that have a lot of resources and kids that their parents have a ton of money. I've seen it firsthand. And they throw just amazing amounts of money at, at this. And they'll buy every marketing company and they'll buy everything that they can do. But at the end of the day, if you can't deliver and, it, and it's just not good, it's just not going to matter. It's not, not going to cut through. So I, I still think that there's a lot to be said for uh, learning your craft, whether it be in, in the bars and the clubs early on, whether it's starting out as a cover or a tribute band and transitioning into um, finding your own way. Somebody like Nita Strauss, who's the uh, woman that plays in Alice Cooper's band. I mean, she, I first saw her playing in an all female Iron Maiden tribute. And now she's got a great gig with Alice and just released her own record. So there's, there's uh, I think that there's a lot of, of, of different ways that you can break through. I think there's a lot of good bands out there trying. I just think that it is so unbelievably diluted and and that goes for media that goes for tv that goes for radio that goes for podcasts whatever whatever it is everybody the the good news is everybody can find a way to do it the bad news is everybody can find a way to do it because (laughs) with that you you get a really really hard marketplace to find people to stand out and get, get an audience and that that's the whole key whether you're talking music or anything else how do you find an audience and, and build on that. And there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of people trying a lot of different ways. That story that came out a couple of weeks ago of that fake band. That oh yeah. In England Europe, or Europe yeah. Facebook followers and all that. I mean, people are really just trying anything because there's, there's no way to stand out. And you know, that guy had an interesting point and, and I don't endorse what he did, but his point was, you know, for, for a week, everybody was talking about me and nobody would have ever heard of me if I didn't do that. And I don't know if that's why he did that, but it was a good cover and it, it, it made people stop and think for a second. So people will go to any extremes to try to get on the radar and try to find a way to stand out in some way. And I think that the bands that you can always tell the bands that are working hard in the clubs, doing it, um, getting better listening to criticism um that that's a huge problem that i see is people are surrounded by their friends their family their wives their girlfriends or whatever who tell them exactly what they want to hear because it's their friends and family they don't want to hurt their feelings they want to tell them instead of telling them you know what it's not good enough it's not good enough yet you're not telling them to stop doing it you're not telling them they're no good you're telling them you need to put more work in. It's not ready yet. And there's very, most of these bands isolate themselves with people who do not have the the balls to tell that band that. And they, they won't be honest and upfront about it. And they wonder, they point to everything else and everybody else for reasons why the band's not successful. When at the end of the day, it's just because their songs aren't that good. They aren't that good yet. There's nothing wrong with that. Everybody had to start somewhere, but I see that all the time. I can't tell you how many times I've had bands come up to me and tell me, 
that they'll ask me, you know, what do you think? What do you, what do you, we really don't want to know what you think. We really want to know what you think. I was like, you really want to know? I was like, yeah. And I was like, I, I don't think you're ready yet. Your songs aren't good yet. You got to work on your songs. It's not ready yet. Oh man, that's what we're going to hire this guy. And we're going to do this. We're going to do that. I go, you know what? All those people are going to take your money because that's what they do. They're not going to sit there and tell you the truth. I'm telling you the truth and I'm not taking a penny from you. But you want to go pay three people to market your record that no one's going to play and not going to sell two copies because it's not good and not ready yet. You want to throw your money out? Go ahead. And I'm telling you, I don't know of an instance where I was wrong. And I'm not saying that from an ego standpoint. I'm not saying that because I know it all by any stretch. But I've been in this business now 36 years. I've seen it all. And I, 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 think, I just think it's unfortunate where you know, when, when people just uh, toss their money away on something that's just, that nobody has the, the wherewithal to tell them, save your money, work on it some more. It's not ready yet. And a lot of bands and a lot of people do not have people around them to do that. The sportscasters are here finishing up with the great Eddie Trunk, the voice of hard rock and heavy metal. You can listen to him Monday through Friday from 2 to 4 on Sirius X on volume. It also replays from 7 to 9? Is that right? Or is it 8 to 10? 9, nine to 11 Eastern. 9 to 11 Eastern uh, replay. The replay every night. And, and 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern is the live show, yep. And then Mondays, you got the uh, the other show on SiriusXM. Um, which... Yep, that's uh, 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern on Channel 39. And you are working on recording Season 2 of your new uh, show on Access TV, um, which is yep, really cool. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's called tr- Yeah, it's called Trunk Fest, and it's a, a show that covers music festivals. And I shot uh, did one season that aired, and I'm about halfway, a little less than halfway through shooting the second season, which will come out sometime in the summer. And his books are still available. Um, definitely on Amazon you can get the second book. First one it seems like might be out of print or restocking, but um, you look for his essential heavy metal uh, books as well if you search Eddie Trunk on Amazon. And uh, let me get you out of here on this, Eddie. You're, you're the master at, at recommending these. Give my listeners one rock doc and one rock book uh, to watch in 2019. Like I mean, it could have it could have been years ago. Just you know, one that they should watch this year. Saying twenty nineteen was probably misleading. I didn't mean like one that was coming up. Right, right, right. But a, a book and a documentary, you said. Yeah, you're great at recommending these things. I watched um, I watched the hardcore one you recommended the other day on Showtime. It was amazing. Yeah, there's. Gee, I watched so many of them, regardless of the genre of music. I, I just watched uh, one that was, I am not an EDM fan at all, but I was really uh, taken by this uh, recent one that I watched just the other day on Avicii, who was a very young kid who was at the top of his game in that world of music. And uh, unfortunately, you know, he ended up taking his life at like 29, but the film just chronicles his rise and had unbelievable access and insights. I thought it was really fascinating and uh, really, really sad. Um, there's one on uh, a punk hardcore guy named Gigi Allen who was completely out of his mind and uh, did some completely outrageous things, and that's on Showtime at the moment right now. So, I mean, those are two that jump out at me that I radically different genres of music, but people that know me know that I, I don't need to like the music to love a great music doc. So those are, those are two, uh, 
two that jump out that I really, really enjoyed. And as far as books are concerned, I, I, um, I thought Bruce Dickinson's book from Iron Maiden, which came out about a year or so ago, was really, really good. And I would definitely suggest that one, especially so many people in my audience are Maiden fans. The most recent thing I read was a, a book, uh, an entire book on the making of the Kiss album, Crazy Nights, which I wouldn't recommend to everybody unless you're a hardcore Kiss fan. But I, I am, so I get into like deep stuff like that. But as an overall book, I thought that uh, Bruce's book was really good and really well done. And he actually wrote it all himself, and you can tell it's it's a, it, was, it was a great read. Well, it's at Eddie Trunk on Twitter, which is the best way to keep up with everything that Eddie is doing. And again, the volume show is so cool. I love listening to it. Uh, it's on demand on the app, which is great in case you aren't around 2 to 4 or 9 to 11 on Monday through Friday. Um, and real quick, I know you got a lot of callers. You got guys you got to get to. Before I let you go, I got to give you my rush 20 because I wasn't, I couldn't get through. I know you love getting these in the most random ways. So I'm going to rattle it off real <laughs> quick. <laughs> Number 20, test for. All right, Steve, go ahead. All right, 20, I got test for Echo. Uh, 19, the Wreckers. 18, the Pass. 17, Lessons. 16, Dreamline. 15, Distant Early Warning. 14, Animate. 13, the Necromancer. 12, Bravado. 11, Free Will, 10, Tom Sawyer, 9, Limelight, 8, Spirit of Radio, kind of stack those three. 7, Fly By Night, 6, Red Sector A, 5, Far Cry, 4, Red Barchetta, 3, Subdivisions, 2, Closer to the Heart, and 1, From Permanent Ways. I don't speak French, but I believe it's Entre Naus. Entre you, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, Permanent Ways is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Rush albums, so... Great, Steve. Well, I appreciate that, man. I'm glad you got that out. And, uh, <laughs> I won't. That's, that's I, a good list. Very well rounded. I won't rattle off the Van Halen one because I did that with Greg when he was on a couple weeks ago. So my listeners already heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie, look at. I really appreciate you working with me today, uh, being flexible and uh, doing this. Uh, it's great to have you back. Um, have a great. All right, Steve. Yeah, have you, a great man. 2019. Good, Thank good you. To talk to you. All right. All right. Bye bye. Season 9 of the Sportscasters underway. I want to thank John Wertheim and Eddie Trunk for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this episode and all episodes of the first eight seasons of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find us on Twitter, where we're at sports underscore casters. You can email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. And you can find me on Instagram at sportscasters there. Uh, also want to mention my good friend Peter Winson and his podcast, which is Greetings from Allentown. Uh, Peter does the best one-man podcast in the United States of America. It comes out every Thursday. For more information, it's at GF Allentown Pod. He also happens to do the best two-man podcast in America, the Adams Division podcast, which he co-hosts with me, and we release those quarterly. We should have an episode in January where we're going to count down our favorite Royal Rumbles from 1988 to 1999. So I'm busy researching for that podcast, uh, which of course means watching many, many, many hours of the Royal Rumbles over the years. Uh, rest in peace to Mean Gene Okerlund. We played that clip off the top. Wanted to mention that. 
And I guess with all that said, it's one last thing for today, for the first episode of Season 9. Almost done already, and I wanted to talk about the holidays, right? Christmas. Uh, I think December 14th was when the last podcast came out, and I wanted to do one the next week to kind of do like a finale. But with Christmas being like in the middle of the week, anytime I reached out to anyone, they're kind of like, uh, can we do it after the holidays? And people got busy, so I was like, all right, I'm not going to bother anyone else. Season 8 felt good. We'll leave it where it is. Uh, so I went to basically went to break. Tammy worked until the Friday before Christmas. She came home early that day, uh, and it was like, okay, Christmas is off. I think it was the 21st, and we were hosting Christmas Eve with my immediate family. So this is this is how crazy Christmas can be. So here's what we had to do. We had on Christmas Eve. We started our Christmas that morning, and Tammy and I exchanged our gifts to each other under the tree on Christmas Eve morning. And, of course, we both bought gifts for the other person from Paula, so she gave us our gifts. And that was really fun. From there, at 10 o'clock, we went to her mom's house, and her mom and dad gave gifts to Paula and also gave gifts uh, to Tammy and I. Then we came back home. Paula took a nap. And then my family came over to, to our house, and we had a taco bar, and then we exchanged gifts. So it was my mom, my dad, my brothers, my brother's wife, my nephew, and then my family. We were all at my house. We did that. That was great. We did that till like 5 o'clock. Everyone left. And then we went to Tammy's grandmother's house on her dad's side, and we were there till about 8.30, and that was Christmas Eve. That was all on Christmas Eve. So then on Christmas Day, we woke up, and obviously Santa Claus came to town. And Paula opened all her gifts from Santa Claus, which was great. And then we got kind of dressed and went to my mom's house for breakfast with my mom's side of the family. So like my Aunt Lisa and um, and her family. So that was nice. We did that. We have a cousin's exchange there where uh, the cousin's... Me and my cousins, we kind of like pick names and exchange gifts. And I had my cousin Scotty this year, and I got I gave him his gift, even though he wasn't there because he's in Chicago. And then I got a gift from my brother Anthony, actually, at that had me because there is an imbalance. You can't always be on the other side of the family getting gift. You know, we try to keep it as many. Well, whatever. So then after that, I had to go to my dad's house, so my grandma's house on my dad's side of the family. So we were there for a few hours visiting with my grandma and my dad and my Uncle Tim. And then we came back home. Paul got a little bit of a nap. And then we went to Tammy's grandma's house on her mom's side. And that was all of our stops on Christmas. So it's an insane schedule. And that's actually not as bad as it was because we used to have a few other stops mixed in there that have kind of faded away. Like my stepfather's family. I have been going to Christmas Eve, a day family Christmas on Christmas Eve since like 1985 and this was the first year that it didn't happen and i was glad it didn't happen from like a travel sense and i was glad to not have to buy some of the people gifts because i mean it's just a long i mean there's just not it's just a lot okay i'll just put it that way so it's nice to kind of have a little bit of pressure taken off but that day on christmas eve i was sad not to be there i'll be honest you know, when you do something that long on Christmas Eve, and I was there most years, probably 
let's see, if 85 to now is like 34, 35 years, that's probably at 30 of them. And, you know, I was talking to my mom about it, and I think back to some of the early ones and how many people were there. And then over the years, just less people came because people passed away. Uh, you know, people's families grew and they, they had their own traditions or whatever. And then it was starting to build up again because my generation was having kids. And then it just kind of abruptly ended. And it, it was sad. I, 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 More than I expected, I missed not being there uh, on Christmas Eve. Uh, but it was a great break. It was great to spend time with Paula and Tammy. Paula is all about Christmas. We did the Elf on the Shelf thing, which I talked about. She loved that. Although it's been hard to explain to her why the Elf on the Shelf isn't around anymore. Um, she wants to look for Matilda like every day still. And I have to tell her she's back at the North Pole. She's not going to be back until next year. But she had a, it was great. I mean, she loved opening gifts. Uh, she used manners, which I was happy with. Dad got her an 18 van. She loves her 18 van. She got this Barbie camper thing that she was so excited about. I'm trying to think when everything happened. I think her first dance thing happened since the podcast is last on. She had her first dance performance at the dance Christmas party, which was really sweet. She started skating at ice skating on her own. Two years old. She can skate without anyone holding on to her. No double runners, no walkers, nothing like that. We took her to first night, which is like this non-alcoholic indoor carnival type thing for New Year's Eve. I'm not a big New Year's Eve guy. We did that and we came home. We watched the ball drop. I was asleep at like 12.05. Not a big New Year's guy, so no big deal there. But it was a great it was a great family vacation, right? We did a lot together. I got some rest, you know, because we did plenty apart. The Saints clinched the first seed in the NFC playoffs for only the second time in history. The other time was 2009. So I had no stress of the Saints over break. I just got to relax, enjoy my break, enjoy my family, enjoy Paula, refresh myself. My health has been pretty decent since it bottomed out in October. Uh, so, you know, knock on whatever there. Uh, but really, really, I just want to thank anyone anyone who's within the sound of my voice who has spent even one minute uh, listening to this dumb podcast since 2011 thank you thank you so much and thank you to Don uh, for being my trusted partner for so many years I appreciate everything he did as a partner on this podcast thank you so much thank you to all the guests Lee Jenkins Richard Deitch Jeff Perlman Jane Levy Jeff Passan John Wertheim and Eddie Trunk were on today. Thank you so much. Thanks to everyone who's read a book. Anyone I've sent a book to. If I owe you a book, ooh, I'm sorry, but remind me. Man, it's been fun, and I, I can't wait to do more. I'm excited for Season 9. I think it's going to be a great season. If there's anyone you want on the show, the sportscasters at gmail.com. We'll be back next week. Battle
yourself a dream.